Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Rebecca Mayet. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Associate Professor Deborah Bateman. Deborah is a keen and critical futures educator and futurist based in Melbourne, Australia. In the early 2000s, Deborah completed a Master's of Education via thesis on the case for futures education in Australian schools. She then completed her PhD looking at the interconnections between futures thinking, curriculum and human capacity. Over the past 14 years, Deborah has held senior and executive academic leadership roles in teaching and learning at two highly regarded universities in Melbourne, Australia, Deakin University and RMIT University. As Associate Professor in Education, she is also leading a significant transformation in the youth work and youth studies area of global, urban and social studies. Deborah currently sits on the board for Life Changer Foundation. Welcome to FuturePod, Deb. Thank you for having me back. To start off with, Deb, I'd love to get to know you've got a very interesting background story. What brought you into the futures space? How did you um, come across it and and come into come into the futures field? It's kind of interesting because it's informed the way that I've gone about futures over time. I was a young person, pretty misdirected at school, unsure of what I wanted to do when I grew up. Uh, and became a hairdresser at the end of my schooling and through a series of really unfortunate events um, needed to retrain and and uh, found myself enrolled in teacher education um, back at the time when it was uh, called Christ College and everyone went to teachers college rather than university. So I had been studying at university and having been allergic to education previously uh, had really been turned on to the idea of education as you know, being the greatest life changer or, you know, uh, opening access to different things in people's lives. And um, through my undergraduate years, uh, I think the thrill of just becoming a teacher and rethinking how I'd experienced education was my main driver. Um, Having become addicted to education, I then went straight on to do postgraduate study uh, whilst I was also teaching in a school Um, in a reasonably disadvantaged area of Melbourne. Uh, So in my postgraduate studies, uh, we were forced to do a series of compulsory subjects on the lead up to a thesis um, process. And I had uh, Dr. Caroline Smith, who was one of my lecturers in that course. And she presented a whole lot of really interesting ideas about the kinds of concepts uh, of futures thinking, the types of tools that you could use. Um, And I guess as an extension, there was a fairly active um, World Futures Studies Federation group. Uh, And so at that particular time, you know, it was a very unsophisticated email thread that you would follow and became involved with this um, lively chat group, really, of who, you know, I guess looking back, are some of the really impressive pioneers of futures thinking. Um, And because of that... uh, You know, Caroline was able to readily access experts who would come and visit us in the in the classroom and kind of talk about their research. And for me, the um, that that main person who I connected with was probably Richard Slaughter. 
uh, he um, had a background as a school teacher uh, and had, I guess, morphed some of the tools and the concepts into ways that they could be applied in classrooms. So working in the kinds of schools that I worked in and I guess coming from a fairly disadvantaged background, you know, uh, in my own right, in a different way, um, you know, and being able to think about the conversations and the activities of young people who were experiencing difficulty, you know, turning up to school, having not eaten nor uh, assuming what their life was going to be because they anticipated stepping into their parents' futures effectively. Mm. And so um, as a as a primary school teacher in a classroom, uh, I had the perfect kind of space and environment to start playing with some of the tools and ideas. Mm. Uh, and I guess as a result of that, um, uh, I then became part of a, a bigger kind of community of people mm. interested in futures. Around the same time, I think there was probably a bit of a split in the field of futures. Uh, and I guess that was the point where really the language of foresight started to appear. Um, you know, Swinburne had this phenomenal program and initiative that had originally been led by Richard Slaughter, which was the Australian Foresight Institute. Uh, and they were building really strong, coherent programs um, that in some ways started to colonise some of the tools and ideas uh, and and in some ways left this space for those of us who weren't in the Swinburne School. I mean, you know, that could be the moment really in history is the Swinburne School of Futures. Um, to really start to dabble and do that really applied research and application kind of in the spaces where we were. And I think the other the other difference that occurred at that particular point in time, so I was in a really prime kind of spot for this to occur, was that a lot of people had come from business backgrounds or they'd come from, you know, human services kinds of backgrounds. And whilst lots of people in the futures field talked about education, they hadn't actually had the experience of being inside education. So um, there was a lot of discussion about what was going to happen to the future of education, but really very little kind of from the ground up emergent work and what it actually looked like if you started to transform. Uh, so Jane Page was another person at the time uh, who was at Melbourne Uni in early childhood and uh, with one of probably the most influential futures people that I have ever encountered and has influenced me, uh, which is Professor David Hicks at University of Bath Spa. Uh, they had done a lot of work, um, particularly on the areas of the images of the future that young people had. Uh, and, and Jane Page had done some really pioneering work in working with children who were only three and four years old. Mm. Um, in my retrospective work, I guess later on, we discovered that in some communities around Europe, uh, particularly around Reggio Emilia and that for a long time, they'd been thinking about these, you know, children drawing and crafting these ideas of the future. Around the same time, I guess I was really influenced by, uh, some of the work that was being done in temporal perspectives or time perspectives mm. and, and the human capacity to actually think about, where I am now temporally, and that as a dimension of what's often called about uh, called um, multi-dimensional citizenship, you know, mm -hmm. that it's spatial, that it's you know temporal, political, economical, of those things, and um, 
So in my in my own studies, my uh, my first thesis um, really was an extension of some work I had done as part of a monograph uh, through the Swinburne uh, Australian Foresight Institute. Uh, and that was really mapping out what was happening in curriculum policy throughout Australia. You know, schools making claims that they were educating for the future and education ministers not being able to explain what future that actually was. Um, and I've still got this fantastic series of letters that I wrote at the time to different education ministers uh, around the country asking them that same question. And um, the general response was, clearly, you haven't read the documents. Uh, and so that that still is um, the artefacts, I guess, of that time that I still use, mm. uh, particularly with students when I'm explaining to them that idea of being explicit about the type of image of the future, mm. uh, you know, in order to collaborate and kind of shape something in common. Mm. Um, so f at the same time, I had a range of further personal circumstances that occurred. Um, my husband, who was a policeman, died in the line of duty, uh, and I was left with a 10-week-old and a 16-month-old uh, um, to raise. And, you know, that was a really poignant moment for me in, the, uh, in my own future's kind of thinking because I was incredibly conscious of the big concepts of agency, you know, how responsible or how are you able to shape your own futures and how do you make the choices and take the actions that effectively not only shape your own future but influence the futures of others. And, of course, at the same time I was still teaching in these uh, schools where kids experienced genuine hardship every day of their lives and they didn't even know it. They had normalised, you know, mm -hmm. this way of thinking. So drawing upon that, uh, and I'd never really got to the point of doing what I really wanted to do in my first thesis, um, which was to work in classrooms and to see what happened when you changed a teacher's actions and the way that they curriculum planned, opened it up a lot more and really strongly embedded that explicit futures thinking and tools mm. into. Uh, and... Um, the you know in the beginning it ended it began as a very um simple exercise really i'd located a number of schools i was going to work with i'd found a great diverse group of teachers i was going to work with and uh about the time i transitioned from being a teacher in schools uh to working in teacher education at deakin a really interesting and kind of serendipitous thing occurred, which was one of the schools I went to work in, uh, teaching pre-service teachers, was a school in North Dandenong uh, called Warana Park Primary. And the principal there was, you know, an extraordinary man who had great vision for what would occur in the school. And often you would see him turning up in overalls uh, to build artefacts across his school and, you know, mm. stimulations and provocations for the kids to learn. Mm. And in one of the learning spaces, the Grade 5, 6 Autonomous Learning Unit, he had built a time machine mm -hmm. and didn't know how to take the time machine to the future. So all of the artefacts in this time machine, all of the materials the kids had been given were all historically kind of facing. Mm -hmm. And they could capture lots of things that were happening right then mm -hmm. and now. Mm -hmm. But in terms of thinking about how they would move a time machine further without using sci-fi texts, 
um, became, in the end, the centre of my PhD thesis uh, because it represented, for me, um, a pretty significant societal issue, which mm. is, you know, we are incredibly oriented to the past in what we celebrate. Mm. Um, and I guess in the work that I'd done around you know, young people and, and the, the development of kind of temporality, um, you know, we know that a baby, a, a newborn is futures oriented within, you know, hours mm. of their life. Mm. They know to anticipate a feed. They know to anticipate being held. They actually begin to know really quickly that um, if they make an utterance or a sound or whatever, somebody will respond. Mm. Uh, and for those next couple of years in a young child's life, you know, that is profound that they are mm. so futures oriented and they are anticipating the next morning when they wake up. Mm. You know, they're anticipating the next something that they're going to receive, you know, the next mm. thing they're mm. going to do. Uh, and so in my own classroom, I started to notice things around, you know, the funny language kind of things that would occur when you started to observe in children those temporalities, you mm. know. Mm. Uh, Today I'm going to go, yesterday I'm going to go, mm. tomorrow I went. Mm. Uh, and, and that conceptual kind of framing of temporality became... And so when you start to extrapolate that into these older years, when, you, when you're finding 12-year-olds who absolutely know how to go to the past, and they've learned that around four or five, you know, when remember the last time you had a birthday? Remember the last time you celebrated something else? Um you know, at the age of 12, we really, you know, still need to have that balance. So I guess that's what I've been mm. really interested in is the idea of how do we create both temporally mobile people who are able to turn their glance at various points mm. uh, and how are we able to ensure a sense of temporal balance? Because once you start to become temporally biased in a particular way, I'd probably suggest that that would be one of the indicators of things like anxiety or becoming mm. really trapped in a particular point of time. Mm. And I guess that's some of the areas that my current research is starting to move in. tools have you come across that you use in the setting of schools and in education? One of the really exciting things, I think, um, you know, through the years of your, your professional learning and everything is that you do come across great tools that you can use. And uh, you'd probably be surprised to know that children find it much easier to actually jump into them and immerse themselves once they have the main concepts or the principles of them. So I guess my favourite ever tool uh, in a classroom and even outside of a classroom I would use in my own life would be David Hicks uh, in his um, Citizenship for the Future uh, book that he published for the World Wildlife Foundation, wrote, um, created these Y diagrams uh, and they used them in a, an English kind of study of young people to think about a single line as being your past, the journey to where you get to. And then the nexus point where you're at right now splits into two lines. And um, for, on each of those lines, you can begin to create alternate futures. And you overlay on top of those tools like your forecasting where you're moving one event or one thing at a time 
or you teach young people to backcast. What is the final kind of moment and how do you get between, you know? Mm. And then you teach them to in-cast, to work out, you know, those three Ps, you know, the possibilities, the probabilities and the preferences. Mm. Mm. And I think um, the integration of tools rather than single tools mm. is what is really powerful when you're thinking about futures framing. Uh, I also like some of the principles of... Um, the temporal scanning tools that are often used. So Richard Slaughter published a lot of temporal scanning tools in mm -hmm. his um, early work and being able to set up matrices and, you know, really sophisticated Kantian concepts by saying things like looking back, looking around, you know, looking mm. forward mm. Um, for that idea of, you know, Elise Boulding wrote a lot about the idea of the extended present uh, and that's a really powerful concept uh, for, for young people, mm. um, particularly the idea that she talked about, you know, the family chain. Um, so, you know, if we think about ourselves as a centre of an extended present that goes over 200 years, mm. uh, then we are connected by the generation who have lived before us mm. uh, and we are generation you know, connected by the generation who came before them. Mm. And then got, looking forward, we're connected by those who will come after us. And, you know, mm. uh, in a classroom, uh, young people find it far easier to connect to the kind of generational work. And mm. the other thing that occurs is that we create a greater intergenerational literacy mm -hmm. by understanding the legacies of the people that come before us. Mm. Um, and we also think about the responsibilities for the generations we're going to have after us. Mm. And I'd probably suggest that our young people today are far more cognizant of those kind of responsibilities. Mm. Uh, and, you know, when you look at some of the sustainability movements, which, which were mm. in baby kind of form, mm. um, but are really becoming very sophisticated movements and, and, and almost new paradigms. So I think um, in really sophisticated classrooms, particularly as you get into secondary schools, um, students love things like, you know, Peter Haywood's Sarka game, you know, um, you know, the, the idea of setting up the different roles and the interactions and the power and the dynamics that go on and mm. how change occurs within society. Mm. Um I think there's uh, some great work that was done by a fellow called Tom Kendall. Uh, he ran this great media kind of hub called Of The World TV, which were really uh, futures-oriented texts. Mm. Uh, and he worked very closely uh, with Oliver Freeman and uh, Howard Borden and Richard Neville, um, Melanie Williams, and they kind of created this tool in order to deconstruct the kind of futures tech. So um, it's called an inspect model, which is about having an eye on the future and then kind of breaking down the, the images of the future okay. uh, into the different elements, you know, nature, the social aspects, political, mm. economic, mm. cultural and technological. And um, I think when you start to apply those kind of tools and ways of looking at things, then what becomes really interesting is that as well as being able to deconstruct images of the future, you're able to reconstruct and reconceptualize. Mm. So if you think about some of the great theories in critical, you know, great theorists in critical theory, um, Paulo Freire, Bell Hooks, all of those kind of people, uh, they often talk about this idea of breaking things apart, you know, uh, deconstruction and all of that. But the idea that when something is deconstructed, you know, the agency 
uh, and shaping of futures comes when you put them back together in a way mm. that's collective, collectively agreed upon. Uh, and I think that that's you know, a really useful way of thinking about those. Um, in my work with university students, I would say one of my very favourite tools is probably more Sahail's causal layered analysis, mm -hmm. uh, being able to understand the deep kind of paradigms. Mm -hmm. And um, although it really, it really wasn't through causal layered analysis um, that I got turned on to the whole idea of worldview, um, worldview is something that is su such a powerful kind of dimension of futures thinking. And I think... That idea that Richard sort of started with really early in terms of um, the foresight principle, you know, mm. uh, and the analogy of learning to drive, mm. you know, that mm. your driving instructor says to you, mirrors, signals and brakes. And why do you look in your mirrors? Because there's always got to be that glance back. And that's, you know, deconstructing that. What is that about? You know, it's about learning. It's about, you know, not repeating the mistakes of mm. the past or understanding the importance of context mm. in how we think about people and, and movement and change and all of those. Mm. I guess I, I like um, I like some of the really deep philosophical kind of ideas. Uh, you know, when you think about the idea of continuities and discontinuities and you ask students to think about what doesn't change, mm. you know, and at what point it is actually changed, something's not continuing <laughs> with a little kind of... Mm. Um, I think you could probably do years just, you know, on those kind of questions because mm. our world is changing rapidly. There are legacies of things that are deeply kind of embedded across cultures. Mm. But it would be very difficult to find anything that hasn't been modified. Mm. Um, I think it's also really interesting when you're increasing the future's literacy of young people to get them to actually find future's texts in everyday life. Mm. Um, I think at uni, most students would tell you almost verbatim that the jobs that we're all preparing for are not going to exist in five years. Um, and then, you know, I, if you go near any of my students, they'll kind of play straight back. So what jobs will be occurring? <laughs> uh, and, you know, people find that really, oh, well, there'll be a shift. They'll be kind of the same. <laughs> um, and so I think it's that, that rhetoric, you know, Noel Goff in some of his work talked about this idea of these tacit kind of mm. futures or these big assumptions that mm. kind of, um, you know, permeate kind of how we think or take for granted or assume what's going to happen. Mm. You know, that's that kind of, um, I don't know, propagation of all of those different futures, those assumed futures, used futures, recycled futures. You know, mm. it's kind of that, that's the interesting kind of thing. And mm -hmm. I think um, that futures consciousness to come back to temporality, I think once you are turned on to that futures consciousness, you do become aware, even though you may not have the critical skills to unpack it, mm -hmm. You, you do become aware, well, what is it that somebody is talking about? Uh, mm -hmm. So I think that that future's literacy piece for me is a really important one. Mm -hmm. So that person can connect it back to themselves as well and identify themselves. Yeah. Um, I, I do there. think, I think one of the things that um, has always been a challenge for the field more broadly mm. is that really powerful interconnectedness between personal futures and collective or shared futures. Mm. And I think uh, one of the things we, when you're working with young young people mm. is that you are incredibly aware that, you know, as a young person positioned to make a difference in their world, it's really important for them to understand that their actions have influence and impact 
for mm. others in the same way that the things that are happening in other parts of the world affect their ability to live in different ways. Mm. And you can point to key moments. You know, the mm. news is a really interesting kind of source mm. um, where if you track back really significant events and, and in some cases you think that they're really insignificant at the time, mm. but they really change the world and they mm. change the way that we're able to operate. Mm. Um, you know, if you have a look at the bigger events and you think about the direct kind of correlation between that event and what actually occurred mm. um, thereafter, I think I think that, that hindsight, that foresight principle kind of aspect is a, is a really important and powerful way of thinking about us being connected to people who have come before us and us being connected you know, to those around us and those who will come after. Now, Deb, one question we ask all of our guests is personally, what do you see in terms of the future in, say, around 15, 20 years' time? What are you anticipating or, or seeing elements of? It's kind of funny because I feel like the first thing I always say in one of my lectures or that to students is there is no crystal ball. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the way that I often frame or ask them to frame a response to this kind of question is really through the kind of tools that you use. So for me, I think about uh, if you do a temporal scan of what is it that we're seeing and what is it that um, I think is going to occur. I think that we're headed for lots of recycled futures. Uh, you know, there's kind of this merge of the same things happening, the same, but, but perhaps they're just different characters who are kind of playing the roles. Mm. Uh, and perhaps there's a shifting dynamic kind of globally around where the power kind of now sits. Because I think mm. one of the really big threads um, or paradigms that we're really seeing emerge right now is this incredibly almost egocentric uh, and really power-based kind of, mm. you know, discourse, action. Um, and, you know, I like to think about it through almost um, looking at children kind of behaving, you know, uh, and there is very much, you know, mine is bigger than yours or I have more power than you, you know, as a global discourse. And at the same time, I think we lack incredible leadership in the world, you know, mm. and I would link explicitly that lack of leadership mm. and that, that grappling for power to a really um, a deficit, a, a complete lack of a vision of a future that is compelling uh, and is able to unite any group of people towards any kind of compelling action. Mm. Uh, and so um, I'm really influenced by a, a young people's book, um, a woman called Isabel Newton. Uh, sorry, Isabel Carmody wrote. Uh, it's called Ober Newton, and um, it's now called the Far Seeker series, I think. And um, when I was doing this activity with some young people in my class, we talked about the idea that you know one of the things that we that everybody is grappling with, and the disc main discourses of society is around diversity and super diversity. You know mm -hmm. that our world is blending in lots of different ways, and mm -hmm. the ways that people travel through and. Um, you know, the idea of intersectionality, that we're made up of all of these pieces. Uh, so Isabella, uh, sorry, Isabella Carmody writes in Obernewton about a completely changing and morphing community. I think that we're losing the idea of a close community. 
Uh, and um, I think what that ends up doing is it fragments people so that we have that really insular kind of look. And so my tip for the future based right now on mm -hmm. all of the kind of trends and those things are that um, we're going to see a more segregated form of the world based on, and look, the, I've been tipped off by a 12-year-old on this, <laughs> uh, based on collectives of values. You know that what you'll do is you'll find places where you can live with people and it will come down to the fundamental human needs of safety and security. And so rather than necessarily being located in a place of birth, you know, uh, or being united or bonded to those kind of things it will be about where you feel you belong where you feel you have security and then when you think about the idea of security we've always thought about that as more you know minimization of harm and risk mm. whereas if you look across the world you know food security is a really major issue mm. so um you know how is our earth going to be bioproductive and who is going to have access to that mm. uh and then you know, how is the, you know, how are communities going to be located kind of in world and then how do, how does that mobility kind of pattern that's increasingly occurring? Mm. You know, we've always talked in a really simplistic way about people who leave their countries, for mm. example, for, a, you know, huge amount of um, time or, or because of risk, you know, mm. our refugees, asylum seekers. Mm. Um, but I think that super diversity is going to become an increased pattern that we're mm. going to see in the world. Uh, and how we bond as communities because everyone needs to belong somewhere. I think the other thing that um, is really interesting is our increasing relationship and return to the customs, traditions and cultures of the original people of the land, you know, mm. throughout the world. And I think um, that, that that is something that is really uh, going to influence, you know, how we're connected to, to land, place and I think think, um, you know, I'm going to be really courageous in kind of anticipating that perhaps we'll begin to privilege uh, and really embrace those traditional ways of being in community, uh, being on land, being connected to the stories of the people. So, you know, there's big threads in what I'm telling you about, you know, my mm. my value of that intergenerationality. Um, mm. You know, I think we see threads of it now in the increased attention even to things like our aged care in Australia, you know, and the importance of looking after mm. our own elders. Mm. You know, if you look mm. at all of those things, we're starting to see these beautiful Indigenous kind of threads and ways of being appear in mm. in in how we could live. Um, for me, it's not all bleak. Um, you know, I think that we can look to the enthusiasm of youth. We have some, you know, incredibly impressive young people in our world uh, who are brave and courageous and passionate about living in a better world. Uh, and I think... You know, as we look to them and we hear their voices more powerfully, I think we will see the emergence of great leaders. Mm, uh, mm. And maybe they will be our next version of tribes or whatever it is that mm. are going to be. But I think that there are some really, you know, incredibly inspiring young people. Mm. Um, and I really look to them as our future generations uh, mm. and future leaders and, you know, with great hope. I think they have incredible access to information. I think they're incredibly discerning. 
Uh, and I think they're incredibly nimble in the way that they navigate, mm. you know, changing environments, their fluidity between digital ways of being, mm. physical ways of being, you know, their cosmopolitan kind of ways. Mm. I mean, you know, cosmopolitan meant that you were trendy. They, you know, they are truly becoming the new citizens of the world in these kind of mobility mm. patterns. Mm. So I think... Um, if we can get around our young people and we can really, you know, encourage and nurture the leaders in them, I think we can see a brave new world. Mm. And I think um, I feel really excited because I work with young people. Mm. And uh, if we listen to them more and we provide the provocations for them um, and, you know, really encourage them to be their best, mm. I think we can have, you know, a phenomenal kind of future or multiple mm. futures for all. So, Deb, if someone comes to you, they've never come across the field of futures or foresight, never heard of the terms, how do you explain foresight to them? Okay, so um, I'm probably a future snob um, or for, because for me the language of foresight marks a particular moment in the futures field. Mm. Uh, it was the emergence of almost a competitive paradigm in, in you know itself and it was a way of reconceptualising futures to make it more sexy for corporate kind of land. Uh, so I do separate kind of foresight and futures. For me, the futures field is, in Richard Slaughter's words, uh, a forward-looking history. Uh, it is about the incorporation of knowledge, concepts, tools that enable, you know, increased accessibility uh, uh, to people to participate in different ways uh, in shaping multiple futures. Mm -hmm. um, it incorporates the idea of possible, probable, preferable futures. And if we're with the Club of Rome, we talk about plausible futures. Um, foresight, I think, uh, was for all the right reasons, a breakaway kind of movement. Mm -hmm. uh, and foresight probably doesn't have the breadth of those same kind of concept tools and uh, applications. And I think most people who practice in the field as a foresight practitioner would still recognise futures as almost a separate field of kind of work, mm. even though we're drawing on the same tools and all of that. Mm. So I think foresight is very much about the tools that you are using to look ahead. And I think that's how it's broadly understood, um, even though foresight practitioners would say that they're still looking back as part of that, that mm. gig. Hey, Deb, for the final question, I'd love to hear about how your work has evolved over time and, and what you're working on at the minute and, and, and what you're thinking about now. Sure. So thank you. Um, I guess the things that I'm really interested in are the human capacity. And uh, I think where I've come to in my own journey in the last two publications I've written for the Futures Journal, the first one was actually about uh, the interventions in people's lives uh, that are made through the incorporation of futures thinking. Uh, the second paper was actually a critique of my own work, asking the question, you know, ethically, 
who of us have the rights to kind of intervene in somebody else's life? Mm. You know, how do mm. we know which is the right way to live or which mm. should be the preferable future? And mm. um, what happens when, as a result of engaging in futures thinking, uh, people go on paths that perhaps are non-preferred by those who love them most around them, uh, particularly when you're working with children, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> it does happen. Um so where I'm really interested now is this idea of futures and its relationship to advocacy. So how do we advocate for other people if they're unable to access different futures? How do we advocate for people to be able to know and name the kind of futures that they might want to explore? And then the other idea is agency. Not all of us are free in the same way as mm. each other. Not all of us have the same access to resources or anything else. So what does that mean for how we live in the world together? Uh, and then the, the other part of the work that I'm really interested in right now is kind of coming back to that futures time perspectives or temporality broadly, because I've kind of got these ideas about the ways in which when somebody gets trapped in a particular time perspective, something happens and they're unable to move beyond a particular point. Mm. So, you know, if you think about life course theory or standing, you know, standpoint mm. theory or those kind of things, this idea that things happen in people's lives and how do we build that future's capacity or that that mobility to move beyond a moment? And I think that there should be lots of work uh, done uh, in areas of, for example, addiction and dependence uh, or you know, gang-related gatherings and things like that because I think we would find patterns of gangs, for example, where the need to belong to what you have always belonged to and that inability to be free to move beyond that or to be courageous enough to explore something different, mm. a different way of being. Mm. Uh, and I think in the same kind of way, the idea of um, addiction, dependency, all of those things. Look at the increased alcohol use of middle-aged people, you know. Mm. Um, why is it that we need to sedate our sense of who we are at, in a particular time? So I think that, um, that over-reliance on any particular temporal mode uh, is dangerous to the human endeavour. Uh, if we are too futures conscious, we are, you know, temporally biased towards the future, we become anxious because it's something we don't have control of. We can't know absolutely what's going to happen. Uh, I think if we become stuck in the present, um, you know, we're unable to kind of flex ourselves, learn from the past, uh, and we sedate ourselves from living and kind of exploring other possibilities. Mm. Uh, in the same way, if you think about a whole lot of trauma-enforced kind of programs and activities, um, when people have experienced difficulty in their lives uh, and they're unable to move beyond that point, unable to reconceptualise something else or have that sense of agency in the world, mm. I think that they're really powerful things. And if you think about the crises across our world and that, that lack of sense of belonging and those, mm. you know, super diversity kind of migration patterns and all of these things, mm. then really the part where I'm kind of coming to is this idea of futures in light of identity. You know, mm. what, what does it mean for fluidity of identity and how do you come back to self? Mm you know, in a radically changing world, uh, you know, how do you keep yourself safe? How do you become self-reliant? And how do you become robust enough 
to be able to navigate changing times and to continue to shape and be brave enough to imagine alternatives to what you're experiencing right now. Thank you, Deb. Thank you so much for joining us today and um, for sharing so much with us. Um, It's been really, really interesting. So thank you for taking the time out. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Rebecca Mayett saying goodbye for now.